VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I am Akshatrati. This week, one goal, two technologies, three times the renewables. It's day five of COP, and it's been busy around here. Over the weekend, we heard leaders from more than 150 countries wanting to secure a more ambitious deal on tackling climate change. My country is experiencing devastating impacts of climate change. This crisis must never be seen as a distant threat. Let's make this COP the first one, where the benefits of our concrete commitments exceed our excuses and the carbon footprint of the planes we arrived on. There have already been some significant successes, including the announcement of half a billion dollars to set up the loss and damage fund. And of course, there have been many, many side deals, which you can read about on Bloomberg.com for free during these two weeks of COP. But a lot still remains to be agreed on including the goal to triple renewables globally by 2030. If it's achieved, electricity will be the first economic sector to get on track for net zero by 2050. Currently, the world has about 3.6 terawatts of renewables installed. That took us more than two decades to build. Tripling it would mean getting to 11 terawatts in just seven years. That is a lot of solar panels and wind turbines to deploy. And there are other challenges like building out battery storage, and grids all around the world. So how exactly are we going to do it? To find out, I spoke with Jenny Chase, one of the lead authors of a new report by Bloomberg NEF. It looks at everything that is needed to achieve the goal. Jenny is BNF's lead solar analyst and the author of Solar Power Finance Without the Jargon, a second edition of which will be published early next year. Jenny, welcome back to the show. Nice to be here, Akshat. We're going to talk about tripling renewable energy by 2030. Let's start with the basics. Before we triple renewables, where are we right now? What is our starting point? As of the end of 2022, we have about 3.6 terawatts of renewable energy. And this is wind, solar, big and small hydro, geothermal, biomass and marine and tidal. Now, the bit of that that anyone expects to drastically increase is the solar and wind section. And it's honestly great that we can even talk about tripling renewables or talk about 11 terawatts of renewables, which is the other number that's being battered around. Because 10 years ago, 11 terawatts of renewables would have been an insane target. Nobody would have believed we can get there. And the reason why we can actually talk about this maybe being achievable is that wind and solar have got really cheap over the last decade. Solar will probably be pretty close or even exceed tripling. The challenge is wind. Our wind team, who are sitting in different regions, trying to come up with a sensible forecast for 2030 based on pipeline, based on policy, based on what's going on in their regions, are saying that no, wind is not going to triple by 2030. 
It isn't the end for renewables if governments don't sign off on this, but it would really help to have some acceleration, particularly on the wind side. And so the difference between where we will be with business as usual, which is nine terawatt, and where tripling would take us 11 terawatts is two terawatts, which is a big difference. It's a big difference. And the other problem is that that two terawatts that falls short is mostly wind. Wind is better than solar on a capacity basis because wind structurally has capacity factors of somewhere between 30 and and 55%. Whereas even in the very sunniest deserts, solar has a capacity factor of maybe 30%. Which is just basically a way of saying that at any given time, because in a day the sun only shines for so much time and the wind only blows for so much time, the 100% capacity is never reached. You only get a fraction of the 100% in actual generated electricity. Yes, fundamentally, per installed megawatt or gigawatt, wind generates two or three times as much as solar. Obviously, the entire point of all this is to try and reduce emissions. So in the scenarios we do have around tripling renewable energy, what kind of emissions reductions do we get if we achieve that goal? So the tripling renewables would put us quite close to BNF's net zero scenario which ended up with 10.5 terawatts by 2030. And we estimate that the emissions reduction is about 9.3 billion tonnes of carbon emissions in 2030. Wow, that is stunning. I mean, given where we are right now, which is 38, 40 billion tonnes of CO2 on an annual basis, that's like a 25% reduction. It's a start. I mean, this is by 2030. That is... (laughs) Both scarily close and a long time away to be talking about a 25% reduction. I wish we were looking at doing it quickly, but you simply cannot turn the juggernaut much faster than that. And so it puts us on the net zero track, which is, of course, we must recognize the net zero track has all other sectors of emissions that also need to decline. We always knew, given how well solar and wind prices were doing, that electricity sector is likely to reduce emissions the fastest, but on everything else, we are quite far away. But let's go back to tripling renewable energy and just break it all down. You talked about how solar will play a big part in getting us there because solar has become cheaper, faster, and is easier to deploy. And you said we are on track and maybe even exceed tripling of solar. Now, why Is that the case? Why is it that solar just makes for the easiest form of renewable deployment there is in the world? Solar is incredible, Akshat. The thing is that photovoltaics is the first bulk electricity source we've ever had that doesn't involve turning a turbine. Do you know how special that is? We finally broke the tyranny of turning stuff around to drive a motor to generate electricity. And it's super cheap. And just over the past over the past few weeks, solar modules have dropped to a price we didn't expect to see for a, a few years yet. They are scary cheap, which is really frightening if you're a module manufacturer trying to sell these things. Solar exceeds our expectations on how much gets built nearly every year. And it exceeds our expectations about how cheap it can get. Not reliably so, otherwise we could change our expectations better. And that would make our forecasting much easier. But Solar just keeps hitting it out of the park and it's not done yet. So why can't we just rely on solar? Why try and trouble ourselves to try and meet goals on wind and hydro? Well, I've been an expert on solar for 18 years, Akshat, 
And the answer to that is that solar doesn't generate at night and it doesn't generate much in the winter. It's a highly technical answer. <laughs> and I know this sounds silly, but as solar starts to be 20% of your electricity mix, 30%, that does actually become a problem because the other sources that you want to add to the grid potentially needed to make money in daytime hours. So wind, for example, generates electricity in the winter and at night, but also during the daytime. And if it's not getting any money for electricity in the daytime and in the summer, that does hit the economics of wind farms. And one of the things that governments would have to do is is make sure the wind gets built anyway. So, okay, we can't rely on solar to meet our renewables goals alone. That means we need wind power. And that is where we are not on track. So what is it that we can do to try and get wind power deployment back on track? So first of all, to build wind, we need to build more grid because wind farms are not distributed. They tend to be in specific locations that have to be quite big. So they need big grid connections to areas of land where you're allowed to build wind turbines. And easing permitting rules is also important, which is not to say that we should just build wind everywhere, but governments can allocate places and types of land which are suitable for wind farm development and potentially build grid to those. Those are the two really big things. And for offshore wind, actually, there's the additional possibility of holding auctions where the governments do site surveys on the seabed because it's pretty expensive to look into a maritime environment and assess the resource and often you have developers doing the same report for the same bit of land, which is silly. Government should take that over and do it once and say, hey, anyone want to build an offshore wind farm here? The renewable stories for all the difficulties that some parts are facing and some governments are facing is a good one. And given the level of deployment that we are going to see over this decade, it's also going to be one that will require a ton of money going into the sector. What do the numbers say when we look at tripling renewables? How much money are we talking here? So it's a lot of money, but perhaps not a totally unreasonable amount. BNF calculates that last year, about $564 billion was invested in renewables. To be on track for net zero, about $1.2 trillion need to be invested in wind and solar every year between 2023 and 2030. On average, it actually ramps up a bit. It's less in the first half of the decade. In addition to that, Investment in grids needs to ramp up as well to about $777 billion in 2030. So that's the grid to take electricity away from all of these sources. And also a very significant amount has to be invested in batteries. So the amount of batteries worldwide has to increase by 16 times by 2030. And of course, we're talking about all this money as if it's just a cost. But we've deployed so much renewables, not because it's just a cost, but it's actually beneficial, right? Somebody is paying for that electricity and building renewables is also pulling money away from fossil fuels. Absolutely. I mean, you buy renewables, so you never have to buy oil again. To meet the tripling renewable energy goal, we need to deploy 720 gigawatts of battery storage worldwide by 2030. That's like 16 times deployed by 2022. So it's way more than the tripling that we need to do on renewable energy capacity. It's a lot of batteries, that's for sure. But on the other hand, the battery market was quite small at the end of 2022. Batteries is in a much earlier stage of deployment. So our battery team actually already says that energy storage capacity will increase 14.5 times by 2030. So Getting to 16.1 times, that's really just a rounding error. 
Batteries aren't in the target for tripling renewables because obviously it's just about tripling the sources of supply for clean energy. But why does battery investment have to rise that much? Well, if we don't build batteries, we're not going to be able to use all this solar and wind that we're building, particularly all this solar. The renewables build out relies on making the way that we use and store and and sometimes even curtail electricity better and more flexible. Because solar and wind do generate only when the resource is there. That's the big difference between yesterday's power system and the future power system that actually we can make sustainable. And we have to move our demand to when there is electricity available. Batteries are one way of doing it. It's not the only way. But we definitely need to build batteries. Well, wind has problems, as we've seen. The industry is kind of struggling right now. But solar is cheap and clearly getting deployed much, much faster. Could we just use batteries to maximize solar and not really worry that much about wind? In parts of the world, that will work. So if you're near the equator, you do pretty regularly get sunshine every day. But even there, there are weeks where there's very little sun. And I think that that will drain even the biggest battery. And the other thing is, if you're just looking at tripling capacity, wind does just generate more power, more electricity than solar. So it would be really good to have a diverse portfolio of clean energy sources, almost wherever you are. Energy security is another issue that has come to the forefront, especially in the last few years with wars, with volatile fossil fuel prices, with reliability of supply. And a lot of conversation going into COP28 is going to be about, well, we need to triple renewable energy, but also make sure that we are energy secure. So what does it mean just from a renewables perspective to try and make supply more secure? I think fundamentally, renewables build is always going to make supply more secure because if you've got solar or wind on your land, that doesn't go away if you have problems with other stuff coming in. However, there's also a lot of talk about supply chains, so manufacturing your own solar panels, manufacturing your own wind turbines. And there is a lot of investment going into this. The US Inflation Reduction Act makes it very attractive to manufacture solar modules in the States. India is doing something somewhat similar, but a bit less generous. And it's possible that Europe will put some money into factories as well. And in fact, we estimate that the global supply chain for wind, solar and batteries is probably invested enough, at least for the near term. There are enough factories out there to supply the tripling renewables future with like minor tweaks. (laughs) There are not that many things on which we can say, well, we are on track for net zero. It's interesting that manufacturing capacity-wise, it seems like we are quite there. It's more really deploying all that capacity that's sitting. Definitely. The bottlenecks are all deployment, honestly. And it's not usually even economic barriers. It's usually things like grid and land and supply chains and getting long-term security in place. It's Things that potentially governments can de-bottleneck. After the break, we get into the OG of renewable energy, hydropower. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. 
but they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about wind and solar for very good reason, but until recently, the source of renewable energy that made for the greatest supply of renewable power was hydro. Does hydro feature in any way in this goal to reach tripling of renewable energy? So I think the structure of the target probably doesn't benefit hydro, particularly because hydro has a high capacity factor. It's clearly advantageous for countries that can build hydro to add more hydro. My suspicion is, though, that it will not be a big part of the increase. Building new hydro isn't trivial because you need a suitable place for it. And most developed countries have already pretty much developed the suitable resources that they have. Hydro is also quite susceptible to drought. So regions that are heavily dependent on hydro do sometimes have problems in drought. It's actually a good complement to solar because, of course, solar generates more in those times of year. So it can help you use the hydro to just balance the solar. But yes, it's quite difficult for us to imagine that there will be a huge hydro build out. Are there other renewables that are meaningful in trying to meet this tripling renewables capacity? There aren't any that are quite as easy to scale as solar, wind and hydro. I mean, if you have geothermal resources, then build geothermal power plants. That's really great. And it's very unlikely that this statement will include anything on nuclear, but nuclear is also a clean electricity source. There are parts of the world that can probably usefully build that. Otherwise, there isn't really anything else that scales in the same way. There is, in fact, some discussion among a group of countries, sort of the coalition of the willing, that are going to try and put out a goal for tripling nuclear capacity by 2050. So that may be the best outcome that nuclear has had at a COP meeting in forever, I think. Let's go back to tripling renewable energy. Even though the goal is tripling renewables globally, do all countries need to approach the target in the same way? No, certainly not. Brazil, for example, already gets 85% of its electricity from renewables, mostly hydro. And so it really makes no sense for Brazil to try and triple its renewables capacity. It should focus on decarbonizing other parts of its economy instead. And then there are parts like the Middle East and Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and India, India is a really big one, where increasing renewables by more than a tripling is not only required to get the world on track for net zero, but it's probably also quite beneficial potentially for bringing electricity to people who haven't had enough in the past and to leapfrog over the need to build centralised fossil fuel power plants. The market that is both expected to triple renewables by 2030 and where that would be really enough to be on a net zero pathway is China. 
China is building huge amounts of solar and wind and also batteries. And China is probably going to be on a net zero pathway. The US and Europe are not expected to triple renewables by 2030. Europe is actually more ambitious than tripling renewables, which is um, great. Obviously, being ahead is, is fantastic. The US should speed up. I also suspect that particularly for sub-Saharan Africa, tripling renewables is not a burden, but an opportunity. And richer countries can certainly help with providing climate finance and making it easier for these to deploy renewables. That should also help them on the development path. It should not be considered a thing that will hold them back at this point. And when big economies do invest in renewables, we can see huge differences. So China obviously is the largest maker of all these renewable technologies, but also the largest deployer of renewables. Already, we had some reporting this year that given the level of deployment in China, its emissions are likely to peak this year, decline next year. And if it continues that kind of renewable deployment, just remain in structural decrease after that. That's a goal as a country that China had set in the UN that they will peak their emissions before 2030. And if these numbers are correct, it could peak it as soon as 2023. Now, you raise the point that the US is not going to be tripling renewable energy according to the forecasts you have. If the US went harder, that could make a big difference. That's true. The thing about the US is that since the Inflation Reduction Act has been published and brought into law, it's like this car that has the accelerator pressed down really hard, but it's also got the handbrake on. The economics of renewables are fantastic, but it's a really difficult business environment. It's hard to get permits, it's hard to get grid, it's hard to build anything in America, it seems like, from afar. So what the US government should focus on is removing bottlenecks. The economics are fantastic. The and it should go. But it does need to speed up. And our local analysts all look at the numbers and go, oh, I don't think it's going to take off like a rocket. Now, we've talked about tripling renewable energy because that's going to be one of the things that will get signed off at COP28, most likely. But there are a few other things that are being talked about. And let's just touch on them briefly. One is doubling energy efficiency. It's kind of a no-brainer. You can deploy solutions that would use less energy, but give you the same output. And yet it's one that seems to not really be the sexy solution people want to chase. Efficiency is never sexy. And you generally don't get much credit saving energy. I really hope that passes though, because the best sort of electricity to generate is a sort that you never even have to generate because you don't use it. But it's obvious that it's not a splashy, sexy target like tripling renewables capacity. We have seen some movement given volatility in energy prices over the past few years where industry and governments have focused on trying to increase efficiency. But you're right, it's just sort of the underused lever. Ultimately, would just those two things do enough to get us to net zero? Or do we also have to have some form of agreement to reduce fossil fuel use? That's a very good question. I think... That to get to an actual net zero, we have to not just decarbonize power, which is, as we've discussed, the easy bit. We've also got to decarbonize shipping and transport and agriculture and aviation and industry. And all of those are harder. Yes, we can 
leave the bulk of that to beyond 2030, at which point we'll have loads of cheap and clean electricity. But we've got to start setting the pathway now to do so. So preparations for decarbonising industry, transport, aviation, agriculture are really important at this point. And since we talked earlier in the year about solar, you have finished and a new edition of your book is coming out. What were the biggest updates? So my book is called Solar Power Finance Without the Jargon. And the first edition was published in 2019. And it's meant to explain to people who maybe studied STEM or humanities what you need to know about finance to work in renewables. Back in 2019, I think I was relatively pessimistic about batteries. I sort of said, oh, yeah, and there will also be batteries. But now it's actually pretty obvious that batteries are going to be a huge part of the solution. And over 80% of home solar systems in some European markets have batteries now. So they're really playing a part in moving that daytime power to the evening. And the other thing is hydrogen. Now, hydrogen is not good for everything. It's not as good as heat pumps for home heating. And it's not a silver bullet, but it's something that is potentially a way of storing power from summer to winter. And I think that it's probably going to be something that we use to decarbonize steel and also to run certain power plants when there is no sun and wind for a week. And we don't really have many other ideas of what to do about that. So governments are investing very heavily in electrolyzer facilities. So hydrogen is going to be a thing. And I hope it works, or I hope if it doesn't work, it's because we had a better idea. Now, on a day-to-day basis, you are looking at the renewable energy sector. You're looking at the clients who are interested in deploying renewable energy. But how much attention do you pay to COP? Does that really translate into business conversation? For me, no. I think that the business of renewables is actually much too busy to look at these sort of high-level conversations, which tend to take at least five to 10 years to result in something actionable. Of course, that's the kind of time frame that ultimately as a species we should be looking at. But as an individual and an investor, investors are my clients anyway, that you're looking for the next market to hit, the sort of projects to invest in, what's going to happen with cannibalization. I'm very focused on trying to forecast price for solar right now, which is really difficult. And all of those are much shorter term. But the COP meetings are important to set a path. They give companies signals like, if I build a coal plant, there's a very good chance there'll be a carbon tax on that coal plant. So maybe I shouldn't do that because it will be a stranded asset. And so they they have a huge amount of value. That was a lot of numbers, but I'm glad you could make sense of what is a big, big target. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Akshat. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to Zero. Every day at COP, we publish the Bloomberg Green newsletter, full of all the latest at the summit. Sign up for free at Bloomberg.com. There's a link in the show notes. Also, you can now listen to Zero without the ads. Just log into Apple Podcasts using your Bloomberg subscription. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Share this episode with a friend or with someone who's broken the tyranny of turning stuff around. You can get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Kira Bindram. I'm Akshat Rati. Back soon with more from COP.